Welcome to I Dare You, a podcast by United Against Human Trafficking, where we mobilize you to fight exploitation. I'm your host, Elaine Andino, and we believe that together we can mobilize the fight to end human trafficking. So today I'm really excited because this is actually our very first podcast. We have been talking about this for quite a while, so we're super excited to finally launch in 2020. So at least one good thing to come out of 2020 in this difficult year for all of us. So this is a big win. And today my guest is our executive director, Tamika Walker. Tamika Walker has been part of this organization for the last five years, almost six years, actually. Mm, Yeah, about six years. Also a dear friend of mine and just really grounded not only in this movement, but she's a social worker, so she's got years of experience as a social worker, and she and I have lots of conversations regarding the movement and where it's been and where it's going, so she's got a lot of really great ideas, so I'm excited to delve into that. Um, so Tamika, thank you so much for being here Hi. with us today. Um, <laughs> fun times, fun times. Yeah, so okay, so you're an LMSW, you're a social worker, you have a heart for people, I mean I know you well, you have a heart for people and injustice and marginalized communities, so I'd love to hear a little bit about you, just about your background in general. Well, I'm really excited to be here, and thank you so much, Elaine. It's a a blessing to spend this time with you and be able to kind of talk about the work that we're doing in the community and just be able to share my heart about uh, the the movement as a whole. So, yes, I've been a social worker for a very long time. I have really uh, enjoyed throughout my career working with marginalized communities Mm -hmm. and vulnerable populations and really diving into uh, what I think matters most in the world is being of service uh, and Mm -hmm. being able to serve others. Uh, So I started my career early on working with um, impoverished um, communities, uh, particularly in Dallas, where I'm from, but also here in Houston, Mm -hmm. uh, and worked in Second Ward for many years with um, uh, youth that were at risk for many things and, and gangs and things of that nature and really built programs around helping youth understand the importance of being um, a, a part of the world in a way that was positive and so really enjoyed that work for many years. After that I transitioned and did work with HIV positive uh, folks um, in the community, uh, homeless individuals who uh, had been through many uh, uh, treacherous years of their lives suffering with the, the illness as well as uh, mental health issues, substance abuse, and so really uh, was there at my last job for about 10 years and really enjoyed that work and learned a lot about myself, which I think is really important. Mm-hmm. Particularly as a social worker, you do a lot of uh, work around how you best serve the community is by first serving yourself and learning about yourself and being able to kind of mm-hmm. give back in that way. So really enjoyed that time um, and really delve into a lot of just um, issues around discrimination, whether it was mm-hmm. for LGBTQ communities, whether it's because of the virus itself and family members disowning their uh, their own uh, children because of, of the illness. So really got to learn a lot about myself. It was very uh, hard work, but really, you know, rewarding work. Uh, mm-hmm. And really, uh, at some point, I'll probably do that work again. Really mm-hmm. learned a lot about just the reality of how hard um, but people's lives can be um, when they're um, disenfranchised for many reasons. So, um, right, right, yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of parallels in what you talk about as far as the work that you've done before, almost honing in your understanding of what it means to be marginalized, discriminated against, how people end up in certain situations and then are exploited, which is so similar to the conversations we're having now that a lot of people just don't understand that about the human trafficking movement, which I, I know we're going to talk about more in a little bit. But one of the things that are people talk about, you know, it's being kidnapped, and that's what they think it is, mm-hmm. whereas we've learned it's really not. It's mm-hmm. these systemic issues that are marginalizing them and causing them to be um, exploited. 
And for our listeners, um, we're lucky enough to live in a city where we have a pretty robust response to human trafficking. So unfortunately, we have a large human trafficking problem, but we have a large community of organizations that fight human trafficking, um, a police force that really works alongside us. We have a city that has a very um, cohesive response to human trafficking, Mm -hmm. and we work together, whereas other cities don't have that. Um, However, the human trafficking movement is still young, and so there's a lot that still needs to be built up. So in the last six years, what are some of the kinds of shifts that you've seen from when you first got here to now? Back in 2015, when I started at the organization, we were a very small organization. I always, you know, share that we had two staff members, and we've grown tremendously thanks to the great work that Elaine has done, as well as all of our team members. You know, just building up uh, the movement as a whole and trying to really elevate the work that we're doing. So when I first came on board, the, the big piece that I saw was how disjointed the movement was. Um, I think that you know, folks were doing the best that they could and mm-hmm. trying to honor the, you know, the survivors and doing the best work that we could, but people were really in, in silos. And so when I came on board, we had just changed our name from Houston Rescue and Restore Coalition to United Against Human Trafficking. And so I talked extensively with our board and our, our team at that time and throughout the years about the importance of uniting the community and really wanted to be in that unifying force uh, in the community. So as a leader of the organization, um, I wanted to make sure that whatever I did would be focused on uh, bringing that unification, I believe, back to the, to the movement. And so over the years, I've seen all of us grow. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people uh, coming together through our coalition, um, which I love, and talking about our, our differences, but understanding all the similarities that we had in the work that yeah. we were doing and focusing on those similarities and finding uh, the, the kind of wherewithal within us as an organization to ensure that we're leading in a way to where people can understand that we're not just talking the talk, um, but we're walking the walk. And so as an organization, I wanted to always represent that. Uh, and, and so as I, I've seen the change, particularly over the past two or so years, where EDs of all the organizations are coming together, um, uh, team members are doing uh, work from one organization to the next and collaborating. We're collaborating on grants uh, for funding opportunities. So not just uh, talking about unification, but actually being about it as a, as a movement. And so I, I love the fact that that's happened because I think as a whole, it's going to best serve the survivors right. if we're unified uh, as a movement. So right. I've seen that change significantly in the past two, two and a half years. Right. It's good just seeing how so many organizations have gone from kind of an inward focus to an outward focus and collaborating together. Because, I mean, as we say here all the time, there's no way we can all do everything and operate every service. So I know for us, we look to fill in those gaps. So looking to see, okay, what organizations are doing what? Let's don't compete unless the need is that big and there's not enough workers doing it. Let's figure out how we can fill in the gaps. And I think a lot of organizations are taking that. Okay, I don't necessarily have to have a program. You've got that program. Let's figure out now how we can collaborate, which is huge because the bottom line is exactly what you said. Survivors then are connected to a real continuum of care. I also would love to talk just about kind of where we're going and as a movement as a whole. And I don't think we could do that without talking about some of the things that happened in 2020, right? I'd love to hear from your perspective on the intersection between racism and human trafficking. We talk a lot about that in organization. It's something that has been woven in our DNA for a long time, not just 2020. For you, what was 2020 signify and how do you think that's shaping the movement to come? I think 
if I had to find a quote or something that would relate to our, my experience, because I'm speaking to my experience as a leader uh, of this organization and as also as an African-American woman uh, leading an organization that's really pushing forward uh, our mission to end human trafficking. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest piece was a kind of a collective sigh of relief that I felt happened after George Floyd. And what I mean by that mm-hmm. for me is that relief came because people finally acknowledged that, oh, this is really a reality in our world, and particularly in the world of human trafficking, and how the disparities that impact particularly women of color, and how we have to really elevate that conversation and talk about it, even though it may be uncomfortable, and how so many leaders uh, in the movement, particularly want to give a shout out to Elijah Rising and Mm -hmm. Micah, who I love so dearly. We did a, a talk about the importance of elevating that uh, conversation and within the work that we're doing. And I'm a person that believes in hope more than anything. Right. I don't really, I'm not a person who dives into the, the dark pieces of the, of the world and of life too often. And so I try to elevate hope. And I think for me, what I experienced after the, in an aftermath of George Floyd was a lot of hope, particularly for our movement, mm-hmm. um, because I do believe people um, we're in a space of acknowledging the realities of systemic racism and how it impacts uh, people of color and women and, and uh, men and LGBTQ communities and all of that. And, but at the same time, acknowledging, I mean, at the same time, beyond the acknowledgement, moving forward and what can we do now and how do we come together and unify as we push forward? Do you think that it is possible for us to effectively fight human trafficking without acknowledging the part that systemic racism plays in our country? I think that's that's such a complex conversation to have and to kind of talk through. So I really want to honor the question um, by just acknowledging just how complex it is, the answer would be. So for me, the quick and the dirty is we have to acknowledge it. It's a, it's a, it's a huge part of the, um, uh, the what's happening in the community, particularly with survivors. It's real, um, and we have to make sure that we do our best as a movement to do whatever we can to acknowledge it. So particularly because of marginalized communities when it comes to the socioeconomic factors, when it comes to lack of housing, lack of education, lack of resources as a whole, you know, those things lead to folks being more vulnerable. And I think it's important to always talk about the vulnerabilities. I don't think we talk about that enough in our movement in particular, what leads to folks not having choices in their life, and so this becomes a choice that they have to make. And it's not their fault, not because of what the, they've done, it's literally because of the circumstances. So I think it's important as folks who are advocates for human trafficking, survivors, that they understand it's a very complex issue. And if we're not willing to acknowledge the societal implications that are surrounding the issue, then we're not doing the best service. And so my hope is that through the podcast and through just other educational opportunities that we're able to continue to elevate the conversation of the experiences, uh, historical experiences of folks who are, are, are victims of human trafficking and honoring that. And the only way you do that is by talking about it 
and making it a, a, an ongoing part of the conversation we're having as a movement. And I think we've done uh, a disservice as a movement because we haven't had those conversations. Uh, we don't have enough diversity in the movement. Folks who are providing care uh, to victims of human trafficking, it's not diverse enough. Uh, and what I mean, all kinds of diversity, not just racial, ethnic diversity on, on all levels. Uh, there's a reason why folks who are you know, homeless youth on the street because they're being kicked out because they're LGBTQ mm -hmm. for whatever reason, and you're asking them to come and be a part of a program that say is faith-based. Mm -hmm. They may not want to be a part of a program that's faith-based, but we're one of the only organizations that's not faith-based, and that's a reality that comes with that. So I think that just honoring all the pieces of a human being and the way you do that is, I think, I think first and foremost uh, is acknowledging who they are their ethnicity, their belief system, and making that be a uh, significant part of the programming and the service that you're providing to those. And as an African-American woman who is leading an anti-human trafficking organization, your experience has been you're one of the only African-American women leading an anti-human trafficking organization. So you've been able to look around the room and say, hey, there's some really important conversations we're not having, and other people haven't even thought to have those conversations. Um, mm -hmm. So it's been a long time. So when you talk about kind of the relief, I, I can understand that based upon, you know, all the time that we've spent together, just, oh, now everybody else is willing to have these kind of conversations. One, that's amazing. I know for you just personally, which if you want to speak to that, you're welcome to, but personally, but then also we're always looking at the client. What is the client experiencing? And if the client doesn't look like the other people in the room, do are we sure we're giving them the best care and we're understanding where they're coming from? And we're understanding the, the systemic and the historical context in which they're coming from that you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. No, I think that was beautiful. I think the most important thing was just really trying to find a way to be able to identify with folks in their experience. And I think as a social worker, personally, that's what we're, how we're trained, is meeting people where they are. And the only way you can truly meet someone where they are is really venture down that road and walk with them as a travel companion in their journey and truly uh, as a companion and as an equal. And I think in, it's important in the movement for us to see our clients as equal. They're human beings. Right. They're people who have experiences. You know, we all have experiences. And I think at times because of what they've been through and we hear their stories, we see ourselves as different at times in them, mm -hmm. when the reality we're living the same parallel worlds, it's just in a different kind of experience and a different way we look at how things are. So I think the more we can see the commonalities we have in our survivors and the folks that we're serving, the more we'll, and I think we'll better serve them. So. Right, and I, it goes back to the conversation. I know that we have all the time as a, as a movement when we're talking to somebody about human trafficking, the first thing that people think oftentimes is, oh, they were kidnapped or, you know, and they need to be rescued. And so we have the, and we're starting to tell people, well, you know, it's really not about being kidnapped. That's really actually just a tiny percentage of mm -hmm. all human trafficking. So that leads to the next question of, wait, what? How do they end up in that situation? So you start mm -hmm. talking to people about the, the coercion part and the grooming part, mm -hmm. and you start talking to them about the um, vulnerability side. And you can lose people at that point in time because they think, oh, well, I that would never happen to me. And mm -hmm. so they went from needing the feeling of needing to save somebody who was like brought into a situation that they didn't want to be in 
obviously didn't want to be in to trying to understand how did a person end up in exploitation and how did they end up in human trafficking when a lot of times they're only filtering it through their own experiences and their mm -hmm. own lens. So if they've not spent time in any type of marginalized community um, or there's so many teenagers being trafficked these days, mm, um, yeah. you know, and so they haven't, they don't know what it's like to live as a teenager in this world because it's entirely different than when we were teenagers yeah. Yeah. and they're not looking at it through those lenses. They could miss what society, the push and pull factors of society that is creating human trafficking and is allowing it to flourish. And so I think it's super important for us to be having these conversations so people can start to connect those pieces and understand how we all have parts to play in it, whether it's indirectly or directly. And the only way that we can start understanding that is if we have open and honest and, and really raw conversations a lot of times. I mean, and that's one of the reasons why some people, I think, we want as naturally maybe to avoid it is because they're tough conversations, yeah. you know, and they require kind of deep change, not let me go in, jerk you out, now everything's okay. There's mm -hmm. deeper things at play here. Yeah, um, yeah. So where would you say that the movement in the next, let's say, five years to be headed towards, what were some of the changes that you would be hopeful to see and that you think are in place? Well, I think that as a whole, we've elevated so much, like I said, in the past couple years um, that I think the next phase for us is to really build infrastructure and to really build opportunities within our organizations for survivors to be employed, to elevate our programs, to not just be contractors, uh, which we've so all of us have done, but can we have a survivor-led organization? You know, how beautiful is that? Right. So really building infrastructure within our organizations that would take us from grassroots because a lot of our organizations are grassroots and how do we go to more professionalized experiences where we have clinicians actually you know, working with survivors, actually employed on staff and things of that nature. And so I think that as we push forward, how do we get the funding and support from the community and donors out there to elevate the programming that we you know, already have in place? So I see the movement really becoming more professionalized, if that's you know, lack of a better word, just really enhancing our services. And even though you have really good-hearted people and people who love to do this work, because human trafficking is a dark, dark issue. Uh, there's is. a lot of darkness around it. So people want to bring the light. And so a lot of the people in the movement, including myself and you and our team members and other organizations, are bringing the light to such darkness. And I think that's a beautiful thing. I think that's a starting point. And so once you bring the light into the darkness and allow it to you know, really resonate with the victims of human trafficking, with the team members, the next phase is to, okay, how do we um, build an infrastructure to where we can be sustainable? Right. Okay, we have organizations popping up all the time, people opening nonprofits because they want to you know, really serve human trafficking victims. How do we, let's say, not open up a whole other nonprofit but come together and build the one up the ones that are already there. Right. And it goes back to that unification piece that I talked about earlier and ultimately in being comfortable with taking it to the next level. It may, it may mean some of us, you know, transitioning. You know, some of us have been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. It's always good to get new blood, mm -hmm. you know, in the, in the movement, creative people. There's a lot of exciting young folks out there who really want to do great work and have great ideas about the future when it comes to technology and how to, you know, databases, how to best serve uh, the victim. So I just think as a whole, professionalizing, uh, creating sustainable, um, impactful change in the movement 
uh, is all about infrastructure. Yeah, and I can appreciate that fully. And we have people ask us all the time, how do we get involved? And a lot of times they think that's outreach, which it can be, Mm -hmm. but are you an HR professional? Mm -hmm. Maybe look at having an HR job within you know, a nonprofit. Are mm-hmm. you a nonprofit? Consider having an HR professional yeah. in your nonprofit. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes the nonprofits don't even think to yeah. do that, but that's part of professionalizing it. Yeah. Um, lawyers, you take pro bono cases or have a whole section of your firm that's dedicated to helping the legal side for yeah. um, victims and survivors. So I think, I think that's really good. Um, where do you see this conversation? I know that we talked about um, the systemic race conversation, where do you see that going in the next few years? Because I think based upon what we've talked about, you see a lot of hope and restoration. Um, How do you see that changing things in the next five years? I'm hopeful uh, that there will be change that's sustainable and that is magnified throughout the movement. We won't really know. You know, we're in the middle of a pandemic right now, so a lot of focus is on that. Mm -hmm. And so once that settles down, hopefully soon, uh, we'll be able to kind of get a true feel of where everybody stands. And so I think we'll be able to see that visually when we look at the websites of nonprofit organizations. Are they diverse? Do you have staffing, staff and leadership with diverse backgrounds? Do you have staff providing services uh, who have those experiences, like I said before, about having survivors, you know, be employed? So I think that there's an opportunity for major change here, Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that only time will tell. And I think that what we can do as a movement is to begin to do, be very proactive in our hiring practices because that's something we can control. Right. And we can control who we hire, how we um, you know, do our recruiting, and bringing on folks who can speak to the whole entire community and bring that perspective. So I, I would say in the, in the next year or so, we'll know just how important diversity, equity, and inclusive practices are in the human trafficking movement because it may not be that same push that it is right now. And people may have shifted their you know, focus, even though I know a lot of corporations, a lot of foundations are focusing on providing um, funds uh, and for, those, for those companies that are doing that great work and organizations that are doing that great work, but we won't, we won't know for some time now. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for being here and sharing all of your thoughts. I think they're critical conversations that we need to keep having in the movement. Yeah. And hopefully these kind of conversations will remind people that, hey, let's keep talking about some of these really important things. It's not a flash in the pan of 2020, mm-hmm. but it's an ongoing conversation we need to keep having over the next few years. So thank you so much for being on here. Yes. Is there any closing thoughts that you want to say before we end? Yeah, no, I just want to you know, let you guys know how much I appreciate you and thank mm-hmm. you for having me uh, be able to be a part of this conversation. I think what I would leave the listeners and what I always try to leave in the space that I'm in is just, you know, how do we continue to exhibit love and respect and kindness to one another? It's uh, so important in the movement when we're doing this great work to really be able to just love on one another and, you know, leave that impression um, for folks you're working with in the movement and just in your community uh, as a whole um, to really have unconditional love. Mm -hmm. That's where I think the greatest impact happens in the world is just truly loving people for who they are and meeting them exactly where they are and honoring them in their experience I think is really important so thank you very much yeah thank you those yeah. are good words and they're powerful words and very Tamika words so oh, okay. Tamika's always yeah, gonna, like, lead, always gonna yeah, lead with the love, love, and love, so, love which yeah. is so good I think yeah. it makes us a strong organization because we have that premise so awesome, awesome. Um, and for our listeners thank you so much for joining us for our first podcast um, as always we want to leave you guys with some action items in order to empower you to find 
fight human trafficking. Um, so these conversations, we actually have lots of um, webinars and classes that you can take to learn more about all this in depth. So if you're new to human trafficking, please learn about it. There's lots of myths and misconceptions out there that we try to dispel so you can be equipped with real knowledge. We've got some great webinars on the LGBTQ community and trafficking, as well as uh, several. We have one coming out with the Latinx population, one for the African-American community. So I would encourage all of our listeners, A, to lead with love, as Tamika has said, and then to really learn how to see this issue from a perspective that might be different than your own. Thanks so much for joining us.